0: Hi, I'm Michael Glenn, a benched worship pastor. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate that. Um, It's good to be with you this morning. Thanks a lot, guys. That was was great. Um, The last time I was with you back in July, we took a look at Psalm 1. And I wanted to bridge for you a little bit because we're going to be looking deeper in the book of Psalms today. I want to put up on the screen for you one of the overarching ideas that we lifted out of Psalm 1. And it goes a little something like this, that that is... That God intends for us to connect His truth with our emotions and experiences. God intends for us to connect His truth with our emotions and experiences, and God intends for us to delight in that truth. To delight in it. I put a, a reference up there for you so you can see I'm not making that up. How blessed. Is the man when his delight is in the law of the Lord? There is truth to delight in today, church. No question about it. And we are going to get to that um, today. We are going to be looking at Psalm two. So if you brought a Bible, go ahead and, and get that out of. It. Maybe you have a, a a Bible on a device or an iPad. If you don't, there is a, a black hardcover Bible. It should be somewhere in the pew near you. And while you're uh, fishing for Psalm two, I would just want to ask you a question: How was your week? Was it good, quiet, maybe, hectic, any surprises, or did everything go exactly as planned? All right, um, it looks like we're getting to Psalm 2 here. Looks like I see a lot of people get there. It looks like we're ready. All right, so I want to point out to you the title of Psalm 2, just the title of it, and we're going to take a look at that. Look in your Bible at Psalm 2. The very first words that you read are this the reign of the lord's anointed now for those of us who are students of our bible and hear that word anointed should pop right off the page all right and anointed i want to keep this simple for you it was in 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 history when god would act and um he, he would want to d- bestow Uh, some of his authority on power or power on a person, they would go through this act of anointing. It's, It's mentioned many times in the Bible, and it was a physical act. Somebody would take actual oil and literally pour it over somebody's head. And so if somebody was going to uh, step into the office of a priest, for example, in the temple, they would anoint them with oil, and then they could enter and do their priestly duties. Or if Israel was going to be uh, having a king or installing or coronating a king, they would do the very same thing. The priest would come over, they take the oil, they'd put it over the king's head, and then at that point, the king was ready to rule. So to be anointed was to, in some sense in that day, to be conferred, to be bestowed with a certain sense of God's authority and power. That's what that was. You were being given authority or power by God in some capacity. All right. Now, um, we're going to do something here that is going to result in a little congregational audience participation game. All right. So I'm going to move kind of fast. I need you to pay attention because there's going to be a quiz at the end. Now, When you see the word anointed in your Bible there, okay, that is a translation of a Hebrew word. That's right. We're getting into Hebrew words. All right, that is a translation of this Hebrew word. Take a look at it. Now, I'm not going to try and pronounce it because I never get that part right, but that's what it looks like if you're going to use English letters to spell it out. Now, when that word, that's the word for anointed, oftentimes when that word is translated into English, you get this Messiah. So we can take some liberty with the title of our psalm here. Instead of saying the reign of the Lord's anointed, we can say the reign of the Lord's Messiah. Now, let's get even more complicated. Some of the oldest manuscripts we have of the Bible are written in the language of Greek. Okay, so anointed. What would the Greek word be for the word anointed? It's this, Christos. When you see the word Christos, we translate in the English, we get... Christ, there you go. So we're gonna, we can um, take, again, take a few liberties with the title of our psalm. We can say it's this, um, it's the reign of the Lord's Messiah. It's the reign of the Lord's Christ, the reign of the Lord's anointed. So one thing that we learn here is that Psalm two is about the reign of a person. Psalm two is about the reign of a person. Okay? Now, I'm going to ask Jody to put that slide back up before we had all of our fancy words up there. All right. Now everybody, just want you to take a look at the words that are up there on the screen. Does anybody pop into your head? Is there any one person that might spring up in the forefront of your brain when I say things like Messiah, Christ, anointed? So this is the game. I'm going to count to three and I want you to say loudly and out loud the person you think that this Psalm is written about. Are you ready? You guys with me? Okay, ready? One, two, three. Jesus, yes, and King David. It is. This psalm is about Jesus, but it is also about King David. Now, Jesus reigns. Does Jesus reign? Now, I'm bringing this up now. This is where we're going to finish, but I just want to, for all my brothers and sisters in here, and I know we all come into the auditorium, um, I don't know what your morning was like. I want you to take a deep breath and remember that Jesus reigns, and we are going to be celebrating that here this morning. That is the truth that um, we're going to delight in. He reigns. But this is my question for you. if we have an opportunity to look at Psalm 2, which is definitely about Jesus, why do I also add King David? Why is it important to know about how this, this psalm relates to King David? Well, this is the thing. Uh, psalm 2 was written 1,000 years before Jesus showed up in the plains of Bethlehem. 1,000 years. And I, I really believe, and I think it's important for us to understand Psalm 2 at least in part, in its immediate historical context. Now, why is that important? And, and, you know, maybe you've asked yourself this before. Why am I going to be looking at history, 3,000-year-old history, from the other side of the world? Um, and this is why. When we understand, when understanding the intricacy, the accuracy, in which God Almighty orchestrates his story the way he orchestrates history, the way that he works out his plan of salvation over thousands of years, when we examine that, this can strengthen our faith and our ability that he can orchestrate my story, that, that we can put our hope and our plan, our hope in his plan for salvation. Let me punctuate this thought with a passage from the book of Isaiah. Take a look at this. Isaiah chapter 46. Remember. Remember the former things long ago, long past. That is God speaking to us. For I am God and there is no other. The Lord continues. He says this. My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my Good pleasure. And we're going to see that in Psalm 2. It's exciting. All right, let's take a look now. If you've got your Bibles open, look at Psalm 2. We're going to be in verse 1. We're going to look at the first two verses here. I'll read them for you. Psalm 2 begins like this. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. All right, now... As we speak about this psalm this morning, church, I'm going to be speaking about it in, from reference of, of different points in history. So I, want, I don't wanna confuse you. I want you to go back with me now. We're gonna go back to 1000 BC. We're gonna go back to the time when this psalm was written and we're gonna examine what's going on. And this is the immediate historical context of this psalm, which is this. King David, a guy named King David, has finally established Israel as a nation. At long last, uh, God's people, the, the tribes that are God's people aren't, are no longer scraping a living out of the hills. They're not, they're not running for, for the weeds when, you know, marauding bands of horsemen, you know, ride through their territory. David has set up a kingdom. It has borders. It has government. It has army. And he's established this thing of a kingdom. David has united the kingdom, but more than that, More than just bringing the clans of Israel under together under a kingship, in the process of establishing this kingdom, David has also conquered and brought under his rule some of the surrounding nations. I have a map for you to put up. I'm going to walk over here and hope my microphone doesn't squeal because I know it's hard to see. But this map shows the kingdom that David inherited when he started ruling, and it's in gray. I think you can see that's kind of a much smaller area here. It's in gray. Now, over time, Time as David ruled, he expanded his kingdom out from those borders. And you'll see that there are nations around here that he conquered. I'm looking at Syria, Ammon, Moab, Edom, Amalek. And those kingdoms have been brought under the rule of David and his kingdom. Now, um, this is recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 8. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, we get a glimpse of this map of what it's talking about. And I have a very um, edited down uh, version of this passage on the slide for you. It goes like this Now, after this, it came about that David defeated the Philistines. Then he defeated Moab. And the Moabites became servants of David, bringing tribute. Then David defeated. Then David defeated. Then David defeated. And it goes on to list in some detail everything that David had done, everything that he had conquered, all the enemies of Israel he had defeated and brought under his rule. But it's verse 15 that I really want you to focus in on. It says this. So David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people for all his people. This is not just the Israelites. David is administering justice and righteousness to. In this brief period of time that we're looking at here in, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, we have a, a fulfillment of promises that God had made long ago. Because you have God's anointed king reigning over his people and some surrounding nations. I want you to look at these two verses. Um, The first one is from Genesis chapter 12. This is God speaking to Abraham. Now, a really quick history lesson for those of you, the entire nation of Israel, where do they come from? They come from one couple. They come from Abraham and Sarah. God called Abraham out and he built his nation from Abraham, the first guy. All right. Now, At the time of our psalm, we have this kingdom with David reigning, but we got to go all the way back to Abraham. God says something to him. Look what he says to Abraham. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God is saying to Abraham, I'm going to bless the entire world through you. Now, God further clarified this idea when he spoke to Moses. Remember Moses? Moses brought the people out of Egypt. God said to Moses, again, before David, before our psalm, we've gone Abraham, now we're scooting a little forward. God speaks this to Moses. He says this, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests. Priests minister. That's what they do. So God was intending on his people to be a group of priests that would bless the entire world. I want you to look at the uh, ESV study Bible notes. I just lifted a note out of my ESV study Bible. I'm gonna put it on the screen for you. It goes like this. When the people of God sing Psalm 2, they remind themselves of how God made David and his descendants to be kings in order to enable them to fulfill the very purpose for which Abraham was called. What was that? To bring blessing to all the nations. The anointed one's commission is to make the domain of Yahweh visible on earth. A thousand years before Jesus Christ is born, this is finally happening. This is happening. David is ruling the Lord's anointed king, King David, is on his throne, and his kingdom has begun to expand to the rest of the world. Now, I'm going to summarize this for you. It's a brain full, all right? But I've tried to organize it on the screen in a way that we can all understand and follow along. Now, this, this part isn't in your notes, so don't get confused. This part isn't in your notes, so just take a look at the screen. Are you ready? I'm going to summarize what's going on here when Psalm 2 is written, the immediate historical context. God has established a kingdom through the work, what was that work? David conquering Israel's enemies, of his anointed king, this is King David, who serves as king over a specific people who are now to act as a nation's of priests, that is the nation of Israel, to bring the rule of God, God's laws, which is to say the kingdom of God, to the ends of the earth so that all can be blessed. And what does that mean? That means we're gonna live in peace with God and God's people. Now, earlier, we confirmed that Psalm 2 is about who? It's about Jesus and King David. We just saw about how the Psalm is about King David, but how does Jesus fit in here? Check this out. If we exchange King David and his work And we exchange that with Jesus Christ and his work. And I'm going to flip a switch for you and I'll let you to see everything that I just said on that last side, everything can be said of our world right now. And the realities of the victories of King David and everything up there applies to right now, right here. Check it out. Now, this is going up on the screen. This is in your notes. You ready? God has established a kingdom. Amen. Amen. Through the work, conquering of the ultimate enemy, sin and death, by who? By his anointed one. Who is that? Jesus Christ, who serves as king. Is he king? Over a specific people who are to now act as a nation of priests. That's us. That's his church. To bring the rule of God. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in which is to say the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth so that all can be blessed. What's the blessing of Jesus Christ? To live eternally, to live eternally in peace with God. Thousands of years before David, God tells Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through you. Hundreds of years later, he tells Moses, Moses, I'm going to make you into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A thousand years before Jesus Christ is born, he does it through King David. Is anybody starting to get the sense that this whole mad world we live in is unfolding exactly as God wants? Amen. That this sovereign God of ours Isn't at the wheel of some car that's spinning out of control? How careful, how exact, how mind boggling is that? This master weaver of the centuries is this ancient of days. I would like to ask you again how was your week? Was it quiet? hectic? Any surprises? Did everything go as planned? We do not know what tomorrow brings. I don't know what my tomorrow brings, but God does. God does. I mean, I buckle under stuff like this. I give. I can't imagine history organizing itself with such amazing accuracy on accident. It has to be at the direction of an almighty God. And he reigns. Has to be. And God is good. That's the difference. That's the key. God is good. He can be trusted. He can. He knows my tomorrows. He knows your tomorrows. It truly, truly is in his hands. I believe we just all proved it to one another in Psalm 2. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him, and He helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song I praise Him." David has united a kingdom. The promises of God from long ago are now having an opportunity to be played out. It's happening. He's on His throne. And now we go back to Psalm 2, and we take a look at what it's actually saying. We got our context in order. Let's look what's actually happening in David's kingdom. Why are the nations in an uproar? Uh Uh-oh. And the people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The kingdom is happening and everybody is rebelling. Everybody. But this is also true today. Do you think? Would you agree? I wanna do a quick survey. If you are a Christian, have you ever felt like everywhere you look, there is open rebellion against God and God's Messiah, Jesus Christ? Uh, Well, you're in good company. You're in good company. Acts chapter four. This is Jesus has died, he's risen again, The book of Acts is the story, it's the acts of the church after Jesus establishes it. Now, in Acts chapter 4, you have two guys, Peter and John. Peter and John are both disciples of Jesus Christ. They're out, and they're proclaiming the good news that Jesus died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins for everybody. They're out there declaring that, and they happen to heal somebody who is sick. Now, this causes a big turmoil, so Peter and John get picked up by the cops, and they get dragged before a court. Now, being in front of a court can be scary, I know, all right? That's kind of scary. But I would like to add on top of the fact that when Peter and John were picked up by the cops and dragged before a court, this was the very same court. These were the very same judges that not too long ago had brutally tortured and murdered Jesus. And now they're standing before that same court answering questions about preaching the name of Jesus. That was probably a tad bit frightening. Would you not agree? Now, the the court asks them all sorts of questions, but they answer with such confidence. And more than that, (laughs) the guy that was healed is standing right there. There's no arguing against that. So the court takes a look at Peter and John. They see their confidence. They see the guy who was healed, but can't deny the healing because the people will revolt because it's right there. And so this is what they do. They say, all right, Peter, John, this is what we want you to do. You're going out of here, but I never want you to speak that name of Jesus again. And Peter, John, do exactly what me and you would do. They said, no, but okay, I'll leave gladly, but I'm going to keep speaking the name of Jesus, all right? So they get out and they go back to the church and they gather around. And you, you've got to admit, if, if you were living at that time and you saw Peter and Job get dragged off to the Sanhedrin, to the court, as Jesus had, not, had done not too long ago, maybe you weren't going to see them again, right? So they get back to their church and they're hanging out with their buddies. And you know what they do? And when they celebrate, they say these words together. They recall Psalm 2 and they speak to one another to celebrate. They say, Why? Why are the nations in an uproar against Jesus? Why are the people devising and vain things? Why are the kings of this world taking their stand and their rulers? Why are they doing that? Um, a few observations about Psalm 2, We're moving on. Um, you will see that there are four designators, four different words that describe the people that are in rebellion. There are two general words, nation and peoples, and then there are two words that designate some sort of office of power, and that is rulers and kings. They all have different meanings and nuances. We don't have to get into it. This is poetry-type speak for everybody. (laughs) right? This is what the writer of this psalm wants us to understand. This is everybody. There are nations, there's peoples. And by the way, if you are given some sort of power on this planet, chances are pretty good that office is going to be used at some point against God and against His anointed. Where there are people, there tends to be rebellion against God. Now, I also want to point out, I want you to notice what is just so upsetting, to the nations, to the people, to the rulers and the kings. Look at that, verse 3. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. That's what's so upsetting. You know what that is? Fetters and cords are devices that restrict movement. That's what those are. So what are they saying? They're saying this. We don't want your rule, God. We don't want your restrictions. These are the thou shalt nots. These are the things that God commands us to do that we are supposed to obey. And then you can kind of hear the uh, sense, the collective, ah, oh, just rising up out of the pages. How small of you, God? I, come on. I want to do with my money what I want. I want to do with my property what I want, with my body what I want. But out, don't shackle me, you small-minded person. Now, this is the thing, and and we've got to face this, and and quite frankly, I don't think as a church we often face this very well. Yeah, yeah, God wants to restrict our behavior. You know why? Because He loves us. I don't know what it is about us these days that we try to avoid that conversation, Like, like God is some Like Everything that we imagine in our brains that we think is cool is going to be blessed by God in some way. No. No. Stop thinking that. God wants to help us. He wants to guide and restrict, instruct us in the way that we should go for our own blessing. I'll just start here. This is pretty simple. Don't kill people. Okay, we can, this only gets harder as I go down the list, by the way. Hopefully we can all agree that not killing people is a good thing. Don't kill people. Don't exploit the poor. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That's Deuteronomy 15. Don't crave and be jealous of other people's stuff. Exodus 20. If God has blessed you with money and property, Here's what you do with it. Deuteronomy 15. He's got something to say about that, you know. God says, not everything that feels good to you is good for you. Not everything that feels good to you is good for you. If you want happiness, do you want joy, God says, meditate on my law day and night. That is how you find joy and happiness. That's Leviticus 18. You are to have no idols. None. Popular Instagram stars, okay? Foul mouth actors and promiscuous rock stars are not to be idolized. Right? That's Leviticus 19. These These are spiritual realities of don't touch. Don't touch. So um, I have an older brother and a younger sister, and I'm pretty sure my younger sister is my parents' favorite. pretty sure that's how that goes down. I'm not sure. But I I got a little piece of evidence for you. Back when I was in college, um, my uncle, he has this cool job. He works for the government, so he's all over the place. And he did a stint. He moved his family to Sydney, Australia. And my parents planned a trip to go visit them. So, this is my mom's sister um, in Australia. Now, I was in college. I believe my sister was in college too, but that little sneaky, she was living at home, so I think she got to go. It's, I mean, I'm working through it. It's only been like 20 years, <laughs> but she got to go. And, and uh, this is what we do, I think, as a family, we do this well. They came back, and at some point, I'm sure there was a meal, and we're all talking, laughing about the trip, and there's something that we were cracking up over quite a bit, um, was that they went on an outback safari, all right? So, outback safari, my parents, my sister, and some Australian tour guide guy, and the one thing that we kept laughing about was, it, it seemed that as they were doing the safari and walking about there, that... The guide would occasionally be like, "Oh, don't touch that. That'll kill you." Like, <laughs> it's such nonchalant, you know? Like, if if touching that kills me, can we maybe communicate it with some more enthusiasm, and a little firmer instruction? Don't touch that. But the guy just like, ah, don't touch that. It'll kill you," you know? And they're walking around like, "Oh my gosh, we're gonna die!" And um, this is a. This is, a physical rea- this is a physical expression of a spiritual reality, New Hope. If you don't think that there are spiritual things that can end you, you're mistaken. You're not that boss, okay? And God has his law. And here's an important part, and this is something that I try to convey to the youth group kids as much as I can. It's not retreat from God's restrictions. It's making sure we understand that they are good. There's a difference there. I'm not gonna retreat from teaching you what God wants us, how he wants us to live, but I am gonna bend myself on a pretzel to make sure you understand that it's good. Look at First Timothy, First Timpani- what is that, Timothy? First, <laughs> <laughs> you guys, you guys wanna come up here, take, them. No. First Timothy chapter one. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly we know that god's law is good if one uses it properly this is all a bit upsetting i get it it's a bit rattling we have nations plotting rulers people in power and offices consoling together they're conniving against god and his anointed one they don't want to be ruled by god they don't want god's laws they don't want their restrictions and they are formulating a plan to move and to act against God and against his anointed. I'm rattled standing up here talking about it. It's unsettling, isn't it? Is it a little unsettling? It is. But you know who is not unsettled at all? God. God isn't unsettled. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. It's upsetting to me. It might be unsettling to you, but God doesn't seem to be shaken at all. Wrap your head around the scope of what's going on here, church, what's going on here in Psalm 2. This is describing the entire planet in an uproar against God. They're planning, they're building, they're consulting together against God and His Messiah. This is huge. Can you feel the tension? Like, I'm on the edge of my seat. What's going to happen? Have you ever been in a tense situation before? Um, Last winter, I was out to dinner with my wife, and... Oftentimes, if we're just grabbing dinner together, we, we, we get away from the house, um, often because you can just sit down right away. We'll go ahead and sit at the bar, and your server is always right there, and then you can chit-chat about stuff. We like to do that kind of thing. So we were at a restaurant across town. We're sitting in a bar, and so I'm here. My wife's here, and there was a young woman and another guy to my left. Now, we're standing here looking at the menu. And what I didn't notice right away, and, and in retrospect, I've, it was a lesson and to kind of keep my radar up, I, I try to think about doing that. But this gentleman, this guy, I don't think I should call him gentleman and give him that title, started to get violent with the woman. I'm not talking like verbally abusive. Like he was starting to act in ways that was violent. And it's like a dark cloud, just kind of comes over everything. Now it really is true. I know you, you read this in the newspaper when stuff happens. It happens so fast. It happens so fast. But I believe at one point he had grabbed her arm, he was like shaking or pulling or something. And I, in that brief moment, I'm sitting down, I got my wife here, and I'm having to calculate in my head what to do, and I come to this conclusion after a second or two that oh my gosh, I think I might have to actually fight this guy. <laughs> Why is that so funny? <laughs> <laughs> Now <laughs> he I was going to say this next maybe this is what you were thinking. Now he's a little bigger than me. <laughs> and it's not that hard to be bigger than me in the man spectrum, okay? But, you know, you don't you know, you don't not stick up for somebody who's being beat up, you know? You don't really calculate, I'm ready to go. So do you know, you gotta understand, so he grabs her and he, and he yanks her off the, the stool and he's mad and you can tell. And I'm sitting on a stool, my wife is right here, he's right there and he's moving this way. The first thing I did, I get out of my chair. I stand up. Why did I stand up? I stand up because I need to confront with the, the threat that is in front of me. But now, you have God, you have God with the entire world working against him. Not just the world, the people that are in the world that are of power, the rulers and the kings, they're conniving, they got political action committees, people. They're working hard to undermine the reign of him. He doesn't even stand up. The Lord, he who sits in the heaven laughs. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful picture of the authority and the power of God? We serve a God. There's no beating him. There's no getting around him. He's, He's sure of himself, I think. He doesn't even get out of his chair He's sustaining distant galaxies. He's watching over birds as they build their nests. He's knitting together every single person who is growing in their mother's womb right now. He's commanding the very star that is giving light to the earth by which the people on the earth can see to organize their rebellion against him. Now, Let's turn back to our psalm because God is about to respond to all of this nonsense. And when this God speaks, I think we should listen. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his wrath, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion on my throne holy mountain God speaks to the nation he speaks to the people and what is he saying I've already acted my king is on his throne and he reigns I put him there notice the emphasis on God acting on his own counsel and by his own authority he didn't ask our opinion but as for me I have put my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. The mad world and everything that it can muster and everything that it can organize gets together and marches to the throne of God. God doesn't even stand up. He just, son, I need you to take care of this. I have installed my king. That's the act by which I will deal with all of this god is saying i am seated i am enthroned in heaven you are on earth if you want to get to me you're going to have to work it out with my king and my king reigns god is saying if you have an issue with me you're going to have to go through my son I want to put a verse up on the screen for you, and I'm hoping that we can broaden our perspective on what it means because it's a popular one. Thinking in the context of what I said, I wonder if Jesus himself might have been thinking of Psalm 2 when he said this. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Whoa. That puts going through the sun in a slightly different perspective, doesn't it? God is saying, you didn't put him on his throne, I did. You didn't crown him king, I did. And he reigns. He reigns. And this king, New Hope, New Hope Church, if you are a brother and sister in Christ, if you've received this Savior, if you've been washed, if you've been implanted, imprinted with this Holy Spirit, guess what? He is your King. He is your King. He is on your side. Better yet, we're on His. That's a better way to say it. As God's people, we have been lifted up out of the rebellion. We have been lifted up out of that group. Even with all of our scars and our sins and our problems, God just scoops us right up out, and he places us on the side of the almighty, eternal, reigning king of kings, and he reigns. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with this almighty God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are two ways you can try and go through Jesus Christ. There's only one that ends well, and that is in submission to him as your king, and he reigns. I would like to sing that with you because this is a psalm after all. So let's get our singing voices warmed up. Would you stand up? Here we go.